we go to our second speaker, Mel McKenzie, whose day job is looking after a research collection of marine invertebrates at Museum Victoria. She says her tenuous link with soil science is her passion for sea cucumbers, the earthworms of the sea. But tonight, she's straying out of her comfort zone to speak about a little-known physicist from Melbourne, Mel. Thanks. All right. Well, there were so many science heroes that I could have spoken about tonight. Um, so instead, I had to narrow it down to someone that I've just learned about in the last year. And that, my friends, is a man called Andrew Keith Jack. I'm actually going to follow on here now from the banjo story. Um, I don't think there's a single person in the room who wouldn't have heard the name Shackleton. But I'd be very surprised if there were many people at all who had ever heard of Keith Jack. I hadn't before this year. Now, what happened was that I was invited to, um, to help narrate a Shackleton exhibition up at the Maritime Museum in Sydney this year. And when I first met the curator, Dana, she was gushing about Shackleton. She couldn't stop talking about him. But she also kept dropping this name, Keith Jack. Keith Jack this, Keith Jack that. And of course, being the good scientist I am, I nodded and smiled and agreed with her. And then I raced to Google as soon as she left the room, which was great. <laughs> and this is what I found out. Keith Jack was a physicist and chemist from Melbourne. Now, he was... Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. He's a, a physicist and chemist from Melbourne, but he'd actually won a polar medal for the um, Ross Sea Party for Shackleton's Imperial Transantarctic Expedition of 1914 to 1917. And he'd even actually donated some mementos to our museum. So what I did was I went down to our conservation lab where our lovely conservators were very hard at work and they were preparing a loan um, to go up to the Shackleton exhibition. So they were preparing everything from huskies to, um, to penguins to sea pigs, of course, which are fantastic. Um, but they also had a whole lot of Keith Jack's scientific instruments um, and also his clothing. And this is the first time I'd uh, seen, seen these things and they were just amazing. Um, and it really appealed to my collection manager heart, the way that he'd preserved all of these mementos from Antarctica. And when I say he preserved them, he preserved them so well and he documented them with the foresight that in the future someone might be really interested in these things. So this is everything from woolen underwear all the way down to tiny test tubes of desiccated cabbage and he'd labelled them in his beautiful handwriting so that we'd all know exactly what they're all about. So it was actually a barometer in the end, engraved and given to Keith Jack by Shackleton, the man himself, that encouraged me to dig just a little bit deeper as well. I hadn't found out that much on the internet, um, but when I talked to our wonderful librarians, they let me know that Keith Jack's diaries had actually been donated to the State Library, and they organised a visit for me, which was great. Now, as my long-suffering husband James knows, my Sundays are dedicated to reading books on the balcony, with a little bit of sunshine and a little bit more white wine. Don't judge me, I know some of you do it too. Um, so it was actually with a bit of a heavy heart that I took myself off to the State Library on a Sunday, dragged myself to the reading room to go through these diaries. But I thought, well, I'll give it about an hour. I think that'll give me a good sense of who the man was. 
six hours later, <laughs> I left the library. I'd gone through all of his diaries. There are about seven of them from the um, Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition, plus all of his maps, his amazing diagrams, so many different things. And I was hooked on my new science hero, Keith Jack. Um, so when Jack left for Antarctica, he was a 29-year-old fair-haired scientist with glacial blue eyes. So if you can picture Daniel Craig as a scientist, that was him. <laughs> it was actually a very different wild man who returned. Um, he had shaggy hair, tattered clothes, um, and when, he, when his rescuers came for him two years later. But at this point, I'm going to take it back a step because in order to understand Keith Jack, you need to know a little bit about that expedition. In the early 1900s, Shackleton had been desperate to be the first person to reach the South Pole. He was beaten to it, so he had to come up with a new heroic plan. And that plan was to try and be the first person to cross the continent from sea to sea. He was a master of PR, right down to branding the expedition the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition so he could raise funds. But it was a very ambitious and expensive plan. And to cross, he would actually need two crews. He did one going with him from the Weddell Seaside and another crew from the Ross Seaside laying rations the whole way across to the middle so that he could make it all the way back. He was passionate about his goal. He was loved by his men. And he was really good at self-promotion. But even he wasn't charming enough to be able to raise the appropriate amount of funding at a time when people were talking about a war on the way. But that wasn't going to stop him. <laughs> so just over 100 years ago, he set out on that epic journey that you heard a little bit about before. It was a journey of survival. It was amazing. Before he even made it to the continent, the endurance, his ship had been crushed in the ice. They'd escaped to Elephant Island. He'd done an open boat journey all the way across to South Georgia, trekked across the mountains. I mean, this is really heroic stuff. It was the stuff of legends. But there's another half to that story, and that's the half that's very seldom heard. And that is the story of the Ross Sea Party. These guys arrived in Australia. They'd been promised a lot. They'd been promised funding, been promised a good ship, um, lots of supplies. And none of that was actually there when they got there. So they had to take off to Antarctica with a really hastily patched up ship called Aurora. No money and crew that was apparently, according to one person, only fit for drawing room tea parties. <laughs> they were running late. They thought Shackleton was still relying on them. They hadn't heard anything about this whole crushing in the ice business. So they were rushed and unorganised and definitely not acclimatised to the conditions when they set off to trek. And to add to their woes, <laughs> The ship broke loose, there was a storm at McMurdo Sound, and the crew and most of their stores and equipment drifted away. So they were stranded there. And that brings us back to Keith Jack. Keith Jack was, uh, was actually working in insurance before he got his chemistry scholarship to Melbourne Uni. And there he did his Bachelor of Science and then his Master's of Science. He applied to the Shackleton team as a physicist, but he was rejected at first because of boyhood sicknesses. But the captain of the Ross Sea Party, McIntosh, was really impressed with his perseverance. Keith Jack actually got a lot of letters of reference from different science mentors, and they said things like, he has excellent natural abilities, he writes a good hand, and is of unimpeachable personal character in every respect. But I think it was actually the second bit that um, swayed them a little bit more to take him. 
His parts are solid and will wear well. <laughs> Very important if you're in Antarctica. So he joined the team with his good friend Gaze and he was a good choice. Jack was one of those 10 men who were marooned at Cape Evans in the Ross Sea. So for more than two years, they would have to survive, going between Scott's hut at Cape Evans and the sledging hut at Hut Point. They had to dig through the ice to find leftover supplies from Scott's earlier expeditions. And they also had to, of course, supplement their diet using local wildlife when they could catch it. Three of the party would actually never make it home. So when you hear that legend about Shackleton never leaving a man behind, unfortunately, that didn't count for both parties. Shackleton himself was a larger-than-life character. He was a born leader with a lot of charisma. He had a tendency to be reckless, which I think you're now probably seeing a little bit of, but he was so well-liked that you pretty much... He had to pretty much kill your cat to get you offside. Now, that actually did happen, by the way, to the carpenter McNeish. Uh, poor Mrs Chippy, but that's another story. Both the Weddell and Ross Sea parties um, referred to Shackleton as the boss. They were really inspired by him and there was no way they ever wanted to let him down. So the Ross Sea party, stranded as they were, with minimal rations, um, you know, no resources, all this kind of thing, they didn't even think for a second about saving what they had for themselves. To them, their own survival was secondary to Shackleton. Jack, ever the scientist, started to weigh and measure rations. And these were put into hand-sewn bags and they started to be laid out across, across Antarctica. But they had too few dogs, little to no experience, makeshift clothing and equipment, and sleeping bags that were frozen hard as boards. But they headed out into the frozen desert anyway to do their damnedest. As their chaplain Spencer Smith said, and later Omar White, it's all in the game. Now, this was a desperate situation, but Jack rose to the occasion. He ended up being one of the fittest at sledging. Um, he was calm, rational, scientific. Um, he even analysed the friction of the sledges and rigged up a tent um, to make a sail, to make things go faster. He was always inventing new uh, scientific equipment, um, and he had a routine of data collection. Jack and Gaze were both described as splendid sledging mates and an excellent sample of Australians. Hmm. But two years in Antarctica is actually a really long time and it's not that easy. And at Cape Evans Hut, even though that was better than Hut Point, um, they were still getting a lot of winds all the way from McMurdo Sound. And just to add to that, the Cape Evans hut was actually an Australian settler's bungalow, which is a wonderful design if you want to keep cool with that veranda to block out the sun, but not a smart move in Antarctica. So improvisation was the name of the game. They dug up frozen gear and mouldy food that was buried in the ice. Jack, for example, was overjoyed when he was handed a sopping blanket with pickaxe holes riddled through it. And Joyce and Wilde made some excellent shoes out of an old horse rug. Uh, they actually had to use tent, tents to make clothes instead of their beautiful Burberry waterproofs that were back on the Aurora. And the diehard smokers trialled everything. Uh, they had concoctions of coffee, sawdust and dried herbs, everything. They, the team even tried a homebrew. Now, they used alcohol and malt yeast, but there was no mention of Vegemite. Hmm. 
And they all had raging hangovers afterwards, so I don't think they kept doing that one again. Um, now, as a scientist myself, I know that being in the field can sometimes be not that great for your health. Um, but just by comparison, I'm just going to reel off a few of the common ailments that um, Jack's party, party had to go through. Severe sunburn, hypothermia, snow blindness, hemorrhoids, scurvy, malnutrition, gangrene, and most dangerous of all, depression and mental illness. So there were no comforts, and without the comforts and routine, um, and without a charismatic leader like Shackleton on their side as well, it was very easy for people to slip into this feelings of melancholy and, and desperation and discontent. Now, Jack's diaries, when I read them, they were very factual, very precise, but it was also quite easy to read between the lines on some things that he said. Um, one thing that he said, of course, was that the conditions generally here do not conduce to the betterment of one's temper. <laughs> yep, there were actually reports of fisticuffs, just so you know. And he was sometimes also blunt in his criticism. He called people lazy, said they were off their head, they were poor leaders. Um, he described one of Macintosh, the leader's um, ideas, as sheer darkness. What Macintosh had wanted to do was make a quick dash from Hut Point to Cape Evans, now that's about 25 k's, um, with leaving all the equipment behind and just using their jackets to duck and cover under if a blizzard blew up. So, you know, luckily they talked Macintosh out of that one, but unfortunately they didn't talk him out of the next one. Uh, Cope the biologist was actually one of the worst ones there. Um, Sorry, all biologists. Uh, he lost interest in the science right from the start. So he ended up becoming a bedridden hypochondriac. He had midnight paranoid mutterings about murderers. Um, and the team basically had to hide the harpoon gun. They didn't trust him for a second. <laughs> but as an aside, he was a dab hand at emergency amputations. <laughs> he actually um, was, was hired to look at... To, to study the emperor penguins in Antarctica, but he really wanted to be a doctor and frostbite and gangrene were just wonderful for him. He just loved it, so. But again, another story. <laughs> now, Jack turned to science. Now, that was the way that he stayed away from depression. And he was probably the most persistent of the science team from the very start at collecting routine data and records and things like that. Um, most of the lab gear had floated off with the aurora, but they did have some of Scott's leftovers. And as Gaze put it, Jack was always making things. It was marvellous what he could do. He made a tripod to suspend and weigh blocks of ice, stakes for lake ice ablation studies, tripods, uh, a metre to measure evaporation, a self-recording tide gauge, and a sea current indicator, and lots of other things. Not all of them were successful, of course, um, but he was really persistent and he'd spend days and days just grinding down a mirror to be able to use it um, for a dust counter, for example. Jack and Richards and later Stevens um, did a lot of weather observations and they devised and ran experiments the whole time. And to them, Antarctica was a scientific wonderland. I mean, it was oceanography, geology, glaciology, volcanic activity. They could study the aurora australis as well. So many things to look at. By the time Jack got home, um, he actually had a reputation for being neat, precise, conscientious, but mostly painstakingly dedicated to his work. He was also very popular with most of the people there. He was called a good spirit. And when he wasn't working, he was a keen photographer, he was into poetry, <laughs> he salvaged scrap wood and wire for dartboards and games. Um, and all three of the Australians, which is uh, Jack, Gaze and Richards, were considered a splendid asset. Once they start on anything, they do not leave until it's completed. 
Unlike Shackleton, the Ross Sea Party actually did accomplish their mission. They did 200 days of sledging um, and they laid 4,500 pounds of supplies all the way across the ice to Mount Hope. But it was a really hollow victory. By the time they got back to Cape Evans, three of their number had died. They lost Spencer Smith to scurvy and exhaustion and then McIntosh and Haywood uh, walked out on thin ice one day and were never seen again. There was no sign of Shackleton either, so you can imagine what the men must have been thinking. They had assumed that they'd lost, as well as their three men, of course, Shackleton, everyone from the Endurance, and also everyone from the Aurora. They just assumed they were the only ones left. Jack was actually so stunned when he saw the rescue ship coming that he couldn't leave his hut. And in his diary, he said he was too overwhelmed to write much, but he did say, no more hunting for seals, no more reeking blubber fumes, no more sledging, no more blizzards and frost-seared feet and hands. It was too good to be true. And it wasn't just the rescue that shocked them so much. Shackleton was coming to them in their old ship. So you can imagine what that must have felt like. All of a sudden, they're realising the others survived. Wow, that's amazing. That's great. Everything we did was for nothing. We lost three people. We've lived like this for two years, all for nothing. It must have just been heartbreaking and joyous at the same time. Captain Davis um, said of the seven survivors, they were about the wildest looking gang of men he'd ever seen. They, was, had, they looked strained and harassed. They had smoke bleared eyes and gray haggard faces. Their hair was matted and uncut. Their beards were impregnated with soot and grease and their speech was jerky, semi-hysterical, and at times almost unintelligible. The first thing the rescuers did was to hand out soap to all seven survivors <laughs> and send them off for their first bath and their first fresh clothes in two years. And it's no wonder. They spent days covered in soot from blubber oil stoves. They'd eaten semi-raw meat just to get the nutrients. They'd eaten fishy-smelling penguin eggs. 10-year-old tins of lamb tongue, and in dire times, sorry if anyone's still eating, they'd stuck their hands into the steaming entrails of freshly killed seals to stop frostbite. Bear grills had nothing on these men. <laughs> Keith Jack and his companions returned to a world at war. All those scientific records that they'd collected for the two years that they'd been trapped were packed neatly away into boxes. There was no more thought of personal scientific research. From now on, it would be family and country. He volunteered for the AIF, but as chemists were actually in demand, he was seconded to the munitions factory in Maribyrnong. That's the one opposite the student village. For the next four decades, those observations would stay tucked away in those boxes. And it wasn't until 40 years later that another scientist, Frank Lowe, inquired about them and finally published all that information. And it bridged that huge gap between the heroic age of Antarctic exploration and, and modern science there. Despite the extreme conditions, Keith Jack had no real regrets. He thought about his time in Antarctica as an amazing privilege. Before the rescue ship took them from New Zealand to Australia, um, he actually went out with Shackleton to help in that last-ditch attempt to find those two men who had gone out on the ice. They were trapped in a hut in another blizzard, of course, 
Um, and at that time, he was won over by Shackleton. Before that, he'd been a little bit iffy. I mean, you know, really, two years. But he said that it was amongst the most enjoyable time spent in the South, Shackleton having us in fits of laughter, hour after hour, relating his experiences. And a watch that he received from Shackleton, he treasured and used until his death at the age of 81. And on that note, I come nearly to the end of my story. Just one final thought on Andrew Keith Jack. Before Antarctica, before the war, when Jack first heard of the Shackleton expedition, he was lecturing in science at Dukey College in Melbourne. And he had grand plans to pursue a scientific research career in, you guessed it, soil science. Thank you.